Okay, welcome back. So for the uh, remainder of the morning before lunch, we're going to talk about uh, recent results from two different types of measurement. Uh, in the case of uh, the first talk, this will be given by Paul Lucy on laser reflectivity results. I think he's going to talk about both Mercury and the Moon. Obviously, we've seen that these two different bodies uh, have a lot to teach us in terms of their similarities and their differences. And I know Paul is going to present some really exciting recent results that correlate the uh, laser reflectivity with some of the, the thermal measurements that Dave Page has talked about. Paul. Okay, thanks everybody. Um, you saw some of the great results from the mercury laser altimeter that uh, Dave showed. And today I'm gonna talk about similar data sets uh, derived from the lunar orbiter laser altimeter on LRO. Um, this is a, a schematic here of, of the, the LOLA instrument right here. It has a laser transmitter, and then here's its laser receiver. And LOLA, of course, is primarily designed as a, as a cartographic instrument, measures the range to the surface extremely precisely, and knowing the orbit of the LRO spacecraft, the topography of the moon has been measured with extreme precision. But as Dave mentioned for the MLA uh, instrument, the uh, LR, uh, the uh, uh, LOLA instrument also measures uh, ref reflectance, and let's see, just show where LOLA is here on the, on the LRO spacecraft. So uh, LOLA is right here, and you can see its little transmitter receiver corresponding over here. Um, the, 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 this measurement is actually, I find it actually fairly remarkable. Here's uh, the, the LOLA transmitter uh, is about 60 milliwatts. It's uh, at the high end of a consumer level um, uh, laser transmitter. And here's an example, recent example of that being used in the field. This is a helicopter in Tahrir Square apparently being levitated by laser pointers. Uh, these are, uh, so the, the kind of transmitter on Lola is, uh, is, a, is a fairly low uh, power transmitter. Um, and you can think of the, 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 the laser beam that comes out of, the, the laser pulse that comes out of the transmitter uh, is uh, only emitted for a few nanoseconds. And you can think of it as a cylinder about an inch in diameter and about 10 feet long. With the divergence of the, uh, of the LOLO transmitter, by the time it gets to the surface, the laser pulse is approximately a sphere uh, about 10 feet in diameter. Uh, that impinges on the lunar surface. Now, lunar surface is irregular, so uh, it reflects the light in all directions. Um, and that laser pulse you can think of as an expanding shell uh, that comes out from the uh, transmit point. By the time it gets up to the Lolo spacecraft, that shell is 50 kilometers in diameter, about 20 feet, in, uh, 20 feet thick. And the Lolo uh, transmitter picks about a six inch piece of this 50 kilometer uh, shell uh, to produce its uh, signal. In terms of how much signal we're actually retrieving, um, if you think of the national debt as $16 trillion, so if Lola puts out 16 trillion photons, after this whole process, for that 16 trillion photons put out, Lola gets one photon back from the lunar surface. So that's obviously a government project. Um, <laughs> Now, Lola actually puts out a lot more photons than that, but the, the net result is for every Lola pulse, we get about 600 photons back from the lunar surface. Of course, the, the actual number we get, uh, it depends on the lunar reflectivity, which is the, the topic of 
of what we're going to talk about today. In fact, Lola is so sensitive that we want to avoid these guys here. These are the lunar uh, retro reflectors left uh, by Apollo astronauts. It's 11 on the on the right and, and 15 on the on the uh, 11 on the left and 15 on the right. Uh, these would return so much laser signal to Lola that it would damage the, the Lola receiver. Of course, combined with Lola and NAC, we know where these things are so accurately now that Lola can get very close to these. Uh, but up to very recently, there was an exclusion zone where Lola was not uh, taking data over the Apollo sites. Okay, the quantity that Lola actually measures is called normal albedo. Uh, this is when the, the, sur the, the angle between the transmitter, the surface element, and the receiver is zero. Um, and so uh, for the, a dark surface like the moon, uh, the normal albedo is independent of the, the incident and emission angle of the uh, surface element. So it removes the effect of topography uh, from the lunar surface or from Mercury surface uh, as well. Now, you can measure at this, that at this normal albedo condition, also known to astronomers at zero phase, from space using the sun as a light source. And here's some examples. The, the, the view from the Earth, this is uh, w at full moon. Uh, Galileo uh, viewed uh, the moon at this position, getting a, a near full moon uh, or a near zero phase observation near over Orientale Basin. Apollo 17, also a near, uh, near zero phase observation. But in all these cases, nadir views are confined to the, uh, um, the equator. If you want to get zero phase observations using the sun as a light source, and in the polar regions, you have to have extremely oblique lighting. Um, okay, that said, uh, this is uh, summing a year's worth of LOLA observations at uh, 1064 nanometers. Uh, these are equatorial projections showing that uh, the, the LOLA zero phase observations are, are dramatically uh, capturing the uh, albedo variations on the moon. But these are the, the kind of views that we see very commonly. Uh, these are entirely new. Um, besides me and Dave and the people on the LOLA team, these views have not been seen uh, by anyone else previously. Uh, these, this is the lunar north pole, the lunar south pole observed with no topography corrupting the, the measurements of the al albedo. Just to bring that home, here's a, a whack mosaic taken at almost the same uh, projection. Um, here's this, let's see, here's my, here's the, uh, here's the south polar region and you can see that the, the imagery is, is dominated by topography. Uh, here's that same, that same region from the LOLA data with showing no topographic uh, influence on the reflectance measurements. So that means we can quantitatively compare any portion of the lunar surface uh, and also to Mercury uh, in a, a, a unique way that doesn't involve photometric corrections and, and various assumptions. I'll just, say, make, just show one slide about Mercury. Um, here's uh, comparing the reflectances of Mercury and the Moon. Uh, these are both from the, the, these laser altimeters. So Mercury is, is almost three times darker on average than the lunar highlands. Uh, the, the, the red curve is Mercury. The black curve is the, the whole moon uh, 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 equal area projected. And then the blue curve is the pole, just the polar region. So the Mercury is considerably darker uh, than the moon. Um, 
Mercury is about the same reflectance as uh, the lunar maria or the average Mercury. And this little bump down here, this is for, for the polar regions, is the, the famous uh, Mercury uh, dark deposits, the MLA dark deposits. There, there are no exposures, I'll just preview that, there are no exposures on the Moon similar to the MLA dark deposits. Okay, the, the first paper that used uh, the, the, the Lola reflectance measurement uh, was uh, Maria Zuber et al. Uh, last year, uh, where they did a study of Shackleton Crater, multi-dimensional study, uh, but the, uh, the, the reflectance description um, focused on the fact that here's, here's Shackleton, it's shining like a little beacon here at very near the south, south Pole, and they noted obviously its anomalous brightness compared to the surroundings and offered basically all of the hypotheses for what could cause this um, reflectance anomaly. And so we're going to go through um, the Shackleton example and then using the LOLA data for the whole polar region show, show where, where we're at. Uh, where, where we're at as far as understanding the polar reflectance. So just to talk about Shackleton real, real briefly, um, we've now compared the reflectance of Shackleton to similar sized craters moon-wide, uh, and Shackleton is anomalous but not, um, uh, not uh, is not an extreme value. So here's the uh, reflectance of the interior of Shackleton. And here's the normal albedo of similarly sized craters um, um, uh, in the equatorial region. And you can see that Shackleton is, is bright, but the, uh, there's been a recent development in that um, these craters, uh, the, uh, Shackleton has been shown to expose a northosite in its upper rim based on the illuminated portion of the rim uh, from data from the Kaguya satellite. And these craters down here in the, uh, uh, at the highest normal albedo are equatorial craters that also expose a northosite. So Shackleton isn't a terrific example of, of, of studying uh, whether or not there's an excursion in, um, in uh, reflectance in the polar regions. So what we've done with the LOLA data uh, for both the North and South Pole is compare the reflectance in regions of permanent shadow to the regions outside of permanent shadow in a whole bunch of different ways. So this is an example of a, a map of permanent shadow. This was, is a, uh, an illumination map uh, generated by Andy McGovern. A paper, I guess, is coming out now um, at, at um, Johns Hopkins. And uh, so th this is a subset of those data. He produced a map of percent illumination over long epochs, and this is the, the percent being zero. So these are areas that are permanently shadowed. In Dave's uh, material, those areas all have very low reflectances. Okay, so cutting to the chase here. Here are histograms of the normal albedo of areas, uh, in this case, in the North Pole, uh, which are sometimes illuminated in the blue and versus uh, in permanent shadow in the red, uh, normalized to their abundances. The permanent shadow from the previous map, obviously, is much less extensive than the rest of the polar regions. And so uh, it's clear that there is a persistent offset, a consistent offset between the reflectance in the permanent shadow and sometimes illuminated. Okay, so I'm done, thanks. Oh. I guess there are a few more things to say. Okay. Um, all right, so the permanent shadow is different, though I should obviously point out that uh, there are regions that are sometimes illuminated that are as bright as portions of permanent shadow and vice versa. 
the distributions aren't separated, but the uh, distribution as a whole um, uh, ha have split. Um, so I'm going to say, uh, talk a few minutes about some alternatives to volatiles as an explanation for this uh, permanent shadow and some tests we've done using uh, various data sets. So the principal alternative here is, uh, is space weathering, uh, a difference in space weathering properties in the, in the permanent uh, shadowed regions. Um, the space weathering was first recognized way back in 1955 by Tommy Gold at Cornell. He noted that craters, that arrayed craters, uh, uh, there were morphologically crisp craters on the moon. Some of them have rays, some of them don't. The ones that have rays always superpose the ones that don't, rays, uh, don't have rays. So he uh, uh, inferred that there's some process that is, is altering the uh, uppermost lunar surface on short timescales. Well now, after uh, returning Apollo samples, we have a process we call space weathering. Uh, it principally is alteration of the chemical, physical, optical properties of the moon uh, uh, from micrometeorite bombardment and solar wind sputtering. There's controversies about the relative importance of those two processes. Uh, but basically, both of those two processes produce uh, vapor-deposited rims on pre-existing mineral grains that are full of tiny little iron spherules. And these are, are uh, nanometer scales. They range in size from so, uh, some one to uh, several tens of nanometers. In this size range, which is way below the wavelength, an absorbing particle is an extremely efficient absorber, and its efficiency is a strong function of wavelength. Uh, the, the result of that is that this material where these rims accumulate uh, is considerably darker than typical lunar material. So um, he, here's a plot that shows uh, the spectrum of some Apollo, uh, uh, Apollo 11 rock samples. These are pulverized, measured in the lab. Uh, the Lola wavelength is shown there in, in the green. So a pulverized rock to Lola uh, uh, would have this, this high reflectance, but the Apollo 11 soil samples, which have been exposed to this space weathering process, um, would have this factor of two uh, lower um, reflectance. Okay, so what, uh, uh, what Zoo, one of the, the, the hypotheses raised by Zuber et al. is that mass wasting could have increased the reflectance of uh, uh, the Shackleton crater. So let's, let's look at a little example here. This is a little crater about the same size as Shackleton. Looks like a little Cheerio. It has steep walls. It's shedding material down its walls that are, uh, are not weathered. Uh, and so this un other unweathered material is, is bright. It has not accumulated these vapor-deposited rims. You can see all through this image, there's little rings in here. Um, uh, these are all caused by mass wasting, downslope movement of debris, uh, exposing fresh surfaces. So we can compare uh, that to a a slope map derived from Lola. So I've, and I'm going to flip back and forth here a little bit. And you can see many of, oops, many of these surfaces, uh, many of these ring-shaped surfaces correspond to steep surfaces. There are a few other features. For example, this one up here. This is a little fresh crater. It's so small it doesn't even appear in this map, but it makes a big immature uh, uh, exposure. But the point is that mass wasting or steep slopes can cause uh, 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 in, uh, in this landslide of Apollo 17, just an illustration, 
um, this mass wasting can cause the surface to become brighter. So what we did was a simple experiment. We used that slope, slope map uh, to compare the, the reflectance in and out, just to show in the same kind of plot we've been showing here. This is the equator again uh, in this case. So th this is the, uh, the uh, all slopes and also slopes less than 10 degrees. And then this uh, nearly invisible green line here is uh, the distribution of reflectances of steep slopes. Those are larger than 20 degrees. So we're going to use the same. So this shows that mass wasting does increase the reflectance. So we need to control for mass wasting. So in the polar regions, what we've done is take that, the, the, the Lola slope data and constrain the data so that we're only looking at shallow slopes. Less than 10 degrees, mass wasting cannot operate. And you can see that uh, controlling for mass wasting, we still see a consistent increase in reflectance um, uh, in, in the polar regions in permanent shadow. This difference even persists to when we constrain to steep slopes alone. So here's the case where greater than 20 degree slopes in permanent shadow are also brighter than steep slopes out of permanent shadow. So something very, something very consistent is going on. We consistently see an increased reflectivity in permanent shadow that's independent uh, of mass wasting. Now there's another uh, issue about space weathering that um, um, Zuber et al. Brought up, brought up, which is that these regions in permanent shadow tend to be in the bowls of craters. They do exclude some of the sky, so they hypothesize that uh, the, the micrometeorite and solar wind flux can be lower because they're excluding some of the sky in the bottom of these craters and near steep slopes. So they produced, uh, through ray tracing, a sky access map um, uh, let's, oops, I, I'm reading it over here. So the sky access is computed from the Lolo topography. Um, and now we can control for that effect too. So we'll look at two cases here. Here's the, the, the effect of, of large sky views. These are basically regions in and out of permanent shadow that are distant enough from walls that they have negligible shielding uh, from solar wind and micrometeorites. And this is our familiar uh, offset. But when we do control for, uh, for the sky access, we see that there is still a consistent offset. These are, these are regions where there is significant shadowing of the sky uh, uh, from the uh, solar wind and micrometeorites, and we still see an, an offset between the two populations in and, in and out. So uh, if we take, we can take the, uh, sky access as a, as a proxy for the intensity of space weathering uh, as opposed to this mass wasting process and we still see a persistent difference uh, between permanent shadow and, uh, and not permanent and impermanent shadow, I guess. Um, okay, now the last parameter that we looked at, which is a, kind of an analogy for temperature, and then Dave is going to say a few more words about this, is uh, we looked at the difference in reflectivity on full, uh, pole facing and equator facing slopes, constraining those slopes within plus and minus 45 degrees of the uh, pole facing direction or, or opposite. And so you can see that, um, that the, um, the equator facing slopes are similar to all slopes. 
whereas the pole facing steep slopes, in this case this is uh, uh, constraining it to uh, just steep slopes, uh, are significantly brighter. Now the pole facing slopes are the ones that Dave explained uh, tend, to be, um, tend to be brighter. Now there seems to be some violence done to my slide. Oh, it did, did work here. So uh, just concluding about the reflectivity, the permanent shadow is generally more reflective than the areas that are sometimes illuminated. Um, space weathering, both in terms of slope as a proxy for mass wasting or sky, axe, which, sky axis, which is a proxy for intensity, do not account for the differences between regions in and out of permanent shadow. Steep uh, pole facing slopes are more reflective than equator facing slopes and we're left with basically two hypotheses. Um, the surfaces in permanent shadow are somehow less susceptible to space weathering, meaning that the in, in, at the same intensity they react less, um, or we have volatiles there. And then I'm going to turn it over to Dave for a, a sec to see uh, the, the temperature correlations. The set that Paul and the Lola team have come up with is uh, very interesting and exciting, although as Paul has demonstrated, um, it's not entirely uh, straightforward in terms of its interpretation. Um, let me do pop this up here. Um, so uh, the, uh, what we're looking at here is the, let's go back to the North Pole. Uh, on the left is the Diviner annual maximum measured Channel 8 brightness temperatures, which is a pretty good indication of how hot it gets at the surface. And then on the right is the uh, Lola reflectance data set, the same one that, that Paul showed in map form. Now, you can see here by looking at it that these two don't really look all that much the same. There are interesting similarities in that um, a lot of these craters do appear to be bright, and but there's also some sort of larger scale trends in the data set which are due to things like crater rays, geology, who knows what. And so the idea is to try to disentangle between these two data sets to see if we can maybe find a, a real temperature uh, signal uh, between the two. This is the same uh, situation in the south here. I'll point out uh, Shackleton Crater, which is this bright uh, crater right here, which is an obvious uh, uh, cold polar trap. So, you know, we're done, right? Well, <laughs> so um, the first thing we tried to do was uh, just the same thing we did in Mercury, was simply cross-plot the two data sets relative to each other, and I'll show you what those plots look like. Here is <laughs> on the, it's a little bit cut off on the bottom, but this is uh, annual maximum temperature, 100, 150, 200, 250 Kelvin, and then Lola albedo. This is a North Polar region plot. You can see that there is a discernible general trend of uh, increasing reflectance with decreasing temperature, which is the same one that has shown up in the analyses that uh, Paul has done. And here's the same result in the South Polar region. Um, again, uh, similar, there are some interesting like little things going on here, but the question is um, what's really going on? And the goal of our analysis is to try to figure out a way to beat down this, what I'll call geologic noise that appears to be on the uh, reflectivity signal here. And an approach to, looking, to doing this is to simply confining the analysis to relatively symmetrical shaped impact craters. So the idea here is if you have an impact crater, to first order, 
the composition is probably, as long as it's small enough, is probably all similar, and that as you go around the crater azimuthally, all the geology is more or less the same. And so what we did was, um, and this is very recent work, uh, is we basically outlined uh, the boundaries of all the impact craters in both polar regions. This is something like a total of 400 impact craters. And then confined our analysis to just look at, look at what's going on inside the craters, but not in an absolute sense, but in a differential sense. In other words, and I'll just ex show you an example. Here's a crater we call NP181. And this is the one, one of these we got really excited about, right? Because you can see here that it's got a big cold trap in this quadrant here. This is the uh, uh, brightness temperature map. And this is the Lola reflectance map. And you look at this, whoa, there's the ice, yay, OK. <laughs> but the question is, is, is this um, brightness that we see in this area here unusually bright relative to the general trend that we're seeing, okay? So the procedure was as follows. We took all of the, the data inside each um, crater, and then we normalized everything to uh, what the measured reflectance was when the temperature was about 255 Kelvin, because we could almost find, we could almost always find that temperature in every crater that we looked at. At least some part of it had that. And then we normalized that to have a reflectance of one, and then we saw how the rest of the crater deviated from that reflectance as a function of temperature. And the compilation of all these results are shown right here. So at roughly 255 Kelvin, and I'm struggling to find my cursor right here, um, by definition, all the reflectivities are one. And then in all the rest of the craters, the uh, red ones here are the North Polar, and the blue ones here are the South Polar ones. Um, what we see come out of this is, is a very, very consistent monotonic increase in albedo with temperature starting way down at 350 Kelvin and going all the way down to roughly 100 Kelvin. And it's the same in both poles, and it's very consistent. And so we've got to, given that I think volatiles are out of the question up here at 300 Kelvin, um, we got to believe that this is the space weathering uh, component, or at least some sort of <laughs> textural, temperature-dependent uh, space weathering component in the data set. And, but the interesting thing is what happens here at the lowest temperatures, uh, at least in the southern data, we get a pretty strong deviation from that. And this could be due to low sampling, the fact that those craters themselves, you know, there's a limited number of them. There could be, you know, unusual things going on in those craters, et cetera. Uh, but they provide uh, some uh, excitement for, for both of the hypotheses that Paul <laughs> presented. One is there is some very nice regularity of temperature as well as some anomalies. And that's kind of where at least it stands as, as of this weekend. Uh, but, you know, who knows? There might be a lot of other things that may come out of our, our future analysis. But this idea of just looking inside craters and the differences, um, is it looks like a pretty good technique, at least to help sort out the geology from the, from the thermal effects. Oded. I, 
I, I personally don't think that's the case just because it's hard to imagine uh, you know, that, even, that at these very high temperatures you're mixing in anything that has a hope of being volatile related. And, and also, if it was volatiles, you know, what we saw in mercury, you'd see discontinuous jumps. You know, there'd be something that happens at a particular temperature, and it's not, it's not showing that. Yeah. South is, no, south is the increased oh, one. The north pole is pretty boring, yes. Yeah, okay. so, so the north, no right, but you know, there's issues. You know, we didn't pick some of the coldest <laughs> craters in the, in the north because they're irregularly shaped, and we thought they might have too much of a geologic impact. Maybe if we included, you know, different boundaries and stuff, we might get different results. So that's kind of where things are at. Yes, we could imagine sorting it by crater diameter and doing all kinds of other statistics on this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can show you individual craters that, that show beautiful uh, variations. But some do and some don't. Yeah. I, we've, we have a clickable map if you want to play with this later. You, you, click, on the, yeah, <laughs> you click on the map, you can, you can see how it looks for your favorite crater. Yeah, there are some that show interesting stuff and some that don't. Uh, this is just, you know, the average, this is a way of summarizing the results. And Nate, to what extent is the maximum temperature Hardly at all. It's almost impossible to change the maximum temperature of something on the moon. Yes, that's why I didn't do that for this meeting. <laughs> Yeah, we could easily show you a crater that, like that one we showed here. I mean, that looks just great there, right? But, you know, if, if the thing about volatiles is you expect there to be regularity if, if, it's, if it's caused by some of the phenomena we were talking about earlier. That is as well. That's true. That's true. But, I mean, this is an objective look at where we are right now. Absolutely, absolutely, right. And you know, are we looking at the tip of the iceberg or a little dusting of, of volatiles? Again, that, that's. Exactly, and and this this will be a I think a consistent trend throughout the meeting here. Yes, that's why we need to have this uh, the study. Yes.